hey, we're going to be talking about something really cool this morning. Prophecy. Now don't get scared. We're not going to go to the book of Revelation. We're going to go to the Old Testament prophecy. I was thinking this week, what's the deal with prophecy? Why does God tell us stuff that's going to happen in the future and then fulfill it? And there's a couple of things that came to mind. If God exists and he wants to get our attention, he has to do stuff out of the ordinary. He has to do stuff extraordinary to get us to listen up and to pay attention. Now, some of those things that Jesus did, healing people, raising people from the dead, predicting he'd rise from the dead, and then actually rising from the dead and leaving us tons of evidence for it, that should get our attention. But another thing that God does throughout millennia is he predicts the future, and then he fulfills his predictions in unbelievable ways. So today we're going to look at two portions of scripture where God fulfilled prophecy in Jesus Christ. Now a lot of people will look at this book and say, come on, this is, this is written by men. There's nothing divine behind this. Prophecies, you know, this stuff happens all the time. Rob, you ever heard of Nostradamus? Have you guys ever read Nostradamus's uh, prophecies? Have you ever read them? You need to. Go online, Google search Nostradamus and see how well he predicted future events. Spoiler alert, not very well. And when you look at his stuff, it's like so vague. It's like fire, mountain. Good one, good one, yes. And you can make it mean whatever you want. They're so vague, you can just, okay, it means whatever. Scripture's way different from that. Now, some people might say, well, listen, we don't know that this is actually what the Old Testament said before Jesus. How, you're telling me that nobody came along and changed it to try to make him appear to fulfill prophecy? Well, what do we say to that? How do we answer that? Some people come along and say, look, there's just coincidences that happen. We see this stuff all the time. Coincidences happen, and that's all these prophecies are. Well, this morning we want to look into two specific prophecies and then ask these types of questions. How can we as Christians have firm faith that God's real and that he's proven himself to us through history by predicting the future and then coming through on his promises and fulfilling it? So here's three, three criteria that we want to look at this morning. The first criteria when it comes to uh, scrutinizing prophecy is we want to make sure we're looking at something Jesus did not manipulate in order to fulfill prophecy. Because there are prophecies like that in Scripture. You remember in Matthew 21, Jesus tells his disciples, Hey, go into this town. You're going to find a donkey there. There's going to be a cult of the donkey there. Untie them and bring them to me. And if the, if the guy gives you any trouble about it, say, The Lord needs them. And so they do. They go and they take this guy's donkey and they bring it to Jesus. And then he sits on it and he rides into Jerusalem. And Matthew says, fulfilling what Zechariah 9.9 said. That he would come into his triumphal entry on a donkey. Well, Jesus set that up, didn't he? Like, my skeptical friends look at that and they say, who cares? Like, any one of us could have done that. Any one of us could sit on a donkey and ride into Jerusalem. It's a little more complicated than that, right? You'd have to be from the tribe of Judah and the lineage of David and then get a donkey. And, but there were a lot of people in that situation. So what makes Jesus so special with that one? We want to look at ones where he couldn't have manipulated his situation to fulfill prophecy. The second piece of criteria I want to look at is that we need to make sure the Old Testament prophecies did in fact predate his fulfillment. There are a lot of people who say, look, it just got changed got changed. They make it look like he did it, but it was after the fact. What you have today in your Old Testament, how do you know it's what it said before Jesus was born? And when people ask you that, what do you say? How do we point out, yeah, this is old stuff 
that said this way before it happened. Because if it didn't say it before it happened, it's not prophecy, right? It's a lie. And I don't want to trust in lies. The third criteria I want to look at today is that the fulfillment of these prophecies could not be mere coincidence. And we're going to have to build a case for that. How do we show people, look, this, this can't be coincidence. There's something divine behind this. It's too specific. It's too important. It's too immense. There's a lot here. So that's where we're going to be going today. Uh, grab your Bibles, grab your phone, your iPad, if people are still carrying those around, and open it up to Micah chapter 5. And you're going to want to underline this, highlight it, save it, so you have this verse underlined. This is a really, really specific prophecy about the Messiah who was to come. Micah 5, 2. Now we just come out of the Christmas season, and so this is one of the passages we read a lot at Christmas. But I want to look at it and see if this did in fact happen. Micah 5, 2 says, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. This prophecy is about where the Messiah was going to be born, right? You're familiar with this. The New Testament says Jesus fulfilled this prophecy. Did you ever notice where it says, but as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. There's no little, the songs, they don't write, oh, little town of Ephrathah. Do you notice that? Probably because it's hard for us to say, but they always jump to Bethlehem. What is this Ephrathah? And the Old Testament is filled with all these extra words and places and details. And sometimes we just like overlook them because we don't know what it means. We don't know what it is. What is Bethlehem, Ephrathah? I want to show you a map of Israel. This is from uh, during the time of Jesus. This is what Israel looked like. And you'll notice here's Jerusalem. And then just south of Jerusalem is the little town of Bethlehem. See it right there? But wait. Look up here. There's a town called Bethlehem up there too. Oh man, is Micah just doing a Nostradamus to us? Is he just naming a place that there's multiple of because it's a good chance maybe the Messiah is going to be born there? Is he just saying like, oh, he'll probably be born in uh, Springfield, America, right? Because there's 500 Springfields all over the place? I don't think so. That's where the Ephrathah comes in. Ephrathah is a specific place. Ephrathah is this Bethlehem. In fact, the name Bethlehem wasn't the original name of that city. The original name of that city was Ephrathah. And we find it in Genesis, and we find it in Joshua, and we find it in Judges. Now, when he goes into talking about too little to be among the clans of Judah, uh, he's referring to Joshua. When Joshua was giving the land to the different tribes of Israel after they came in from Egypt and they conquered, he's, he's spelling out who gets what, what area, what city, all of that. And he doesn't name Ephrathah anywhere. He doesn't talk about Bethlehem anywhere. Because it's so insignificant, he doesn't need to mention it. <laughs> Nobody's going to be stoked that they got Ephrathah. It was so small, so he doesn't mention it. And that's what Mike is pointing out. Even though Joshua didn't even care to talk about you because you're so insignificant, from this insignificant place, a really significant person is going to come. It's the idea. This other Bethlehem up here is Bethlehem uh, in Zebulon, in the tribe of Zebulon. Uh, it's in Galilee during Jesus' time period. And it's really interesting because you see how close this Bethlehem is to Jesus' hometown of Nazareth? Now think about this. If Mary and Joseph wanted to trick us all 
into thinking their son was the Messiah. It'd probably be easier just to travel from there to there instead of from there all the way down to there. Nine months pregnant, riding on a donkey for 80 miles. Any volunteers? <laughs> no men should raise their hands right now. That's probably right. It's a crazy idea. That is, why would you do that when there's another one super close? Well, here's the deal. That's not what the prophecy was about. It's spelled out specifically. Do you see how this isn't a Nostradamus mountain fire land prophecy? You can't make this mean whatever you want it to mean. It means what it means. Zeroed in. Very specific. The New Testament confirms this is where Jesus was born. Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew 2, 1 through 6. It starts off, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. You know why they said that? Because there's the other Bethlehem of Galilee. That's why. They have to tell us the specific place. Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, where is he who's been born, king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. Some king, he doesn't even know his, his Old Testament prophecies, right? Like we have the New Testament. We got two testaments to get together. He only had one. Why couldn't he know this stuff? He didn't care. But they said to him, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what's been written by the prophet. And then they quote Micah. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, or Ephrathah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. He's supposed to be born in the specific Bethlehem, the city of David. Luke 2, 4 through 5, tells us Joseph also went up from Galilee, so he's up in the north, in Nazareth, from the city of Nazareth to Judea. He goes down to the province of Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him, and she was with child. So here's the thing. I love this, this passage because what this is saying is that a pagan Roman census helped to fulfill prophecy for God. A.K.A. God can use pagan governments to still bring about his purpose. And for some reason, at this point in my life, that really comforts my heart. <laughs> God can use pagan governments to bring about his purposes. This is awesome. This should give us hope. This should help us to trust God more because we've seen him do this before. And he can definitely do it again, even in our situation. So, specific prophecy, specific Bethlehem, not just any Bethlehem, the specific one. But when was Micah written? How do we know this is old? Well, the prophet Micah lived in the 8th century B.C., so this prophecy from Micah 5.2 is 700 plus years prior to Jesus' birth. That's pretty good, right? 700 years of prophecy, that's, that's a good time period. Tough to know what's going to happen 700 years from now. But how can we be sure that the prophecy from Micah 5.2 wasn't added to the text after Christ's birth? You know, this is a big criticism of Christianity. Uh, the LDS church, the Mormon church, they come along and they say, hey, listen, um, after the time of the apostles, the Bible got destroyed and changed, and there were many plain and precious portions that were left out of it. Can you believe that? 
And then what do we say to that? And they say, we needed Joseph Smith. We needed a good prophet to come and set things back straight and tell us what the Bible really says. Muslims have been saying this for, for hundreds of years. They say, hey, listen, after the time of the apostles, it got corrupted and we needed a final prophet in Muhammad to come and to set straight what God actually said. So when it comes to prophecies, people can say the same thing. Listen, how do you know that it said that back then? Because you have a Bible that wasn't printed that long ago and it's after the fact Maybe they wrote it in there retrospectively. Maybe you're being fooled. How can you know this? Well, we can know that Micah 5.2 was written prior to Jesus' birth. And here's one of the ways we can know that. I want to show you the most beautiful picture you're going to see all day. Boom. It looks a lot like here, doesn't it? <laughs> Desert. Nice. This is uh, Qumran. This is uh, on the northwestern shore of the Dead Sea in Israel. And look at this hole right here. See that? That's a cave. In 1947, there was an awesome discovery that took place here. Uh, there were some Bedouin shepherds roaming around, and there's different stories as to how they got into this cave. But they basically found an ancient library throughout this cave. Nine years of research, they found 11 other caves around, and there are thousands of manuscripts of scrolls rolled up and left in clay jars in these caves, unbeknownst and untouched for a couple thousand years. They know that these were planted here prior to 70 AD um, by a certain sect of Judaism that was out in the desert and uh, really valued scripture and other books. Among these scrolls, we found every single Old Testament book except for Esther. All the rest are there. Among those scrolls, one of the scrolls is called the Scroll of the Minor Prophets. Scroll of the Twelve Minor Prophets. And in there is Micah 5.2. And it's from 50 BC. We can, in our hands today, hold a parchment written in Greek that has Micah 5.2 exactly the way your Bibles say it that predates Christ's birth by 50 years. It's indisputable that this prophecy existed before Jesus' death because we have scientific evidence to show for it. Now, there's many other arguments you can make as to, well, where did those guys get it to write down? And you can trace it back. And I believe that Micah actually wrote it 700 years before before the most skeptical people out there, you can just point to this fragment. If you want a picture of it, uh, send me an email. I'll, I'll send you the link to look at it. You can look at it. It's digitized. It's online. Here it is. Micah 5.2, 50 years prior to Jesus' birth. So what do we make of this prophecy? Well, criteria number one was we wanted to make sure Jesus couldn't manipulate fulfilling prophecy, right? This Micah 5.2 prophecy meets this criteria. It's really difficult for a mere man to manipulate where he's born. Have any of you ever tried that? <laughs> to manipulate where you're, do you all, are you all proud of where you were born? Everyone has to say yes because you have no choice in the matter, right? It's like either be proud or like that's it. You can't say where you're going to be born. You can't force it upon your mom. And yet this prophecy happened. Jesus' parents don't even live down there. They're from somewhere else. They're from up north. But because of a pagan census, God, utilizing human history, has them go down there for Jesus to be born exactly where Micah said it would happen. This also meets criteria number two. This prophecy did, in fact, predate Jesus' birth, and we have physical manuscript evidence of it 50 years prior to Jesus' birth because of the Dead Sea Scroll discovery. It was easy for uh, Mormons and for Muslims to say that scripture got changed before the Dead Sea Scroll discovery in 1947. Now you really can't say that 
because when we compare what they had, which all predates the time of the apostles, with what we have, it's the same. You can't say it was changed. We know for a fact that it was not. Well, what about it being coincidence? Uh, Micah 5.2 possibly meets criteria 3. It may or may not be coincidence, right? I mean, let's think about it. There were a lot of other boys born in Bethlehem. It's literally in Judah. It's the city of David. There are probably other descendants of David who were born there. So we can't say for sure, oh, this is a nail in the coffin. It might be a coincidence. But in order to to think through that, we need to look at more prophecies. And that's what we're going to do next. Turn in your Bibles to Micah 53.9. Micah 53, verse 9. Underline this one too, because this is a very specific prophecy about the coming Messiah. This is in the suffering servant uh, chapter of Isaiah, where he's talking about the servant who's going to come and be stricken and and suffer for the lambs who've gone astray. And in verse 9 of Isaiah 53, he says, His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. We see in the New Testament, Jesus was crucified along with two criminals. Crucifixion was reserved for the worst of criminals. Jesus gets crucified. Um, then what happens is he dies on the cross, they stab him through the side to make sure he's dead, and Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus come. And and Joseph goes and he asks Pilate if he can have Jesus' body. And Pilate lets him off, and Joseph and Nicodemus prepare the body, and then they go and they bury Jesus. These guys were rich. Joseph and and, and, uh, Nicodemus were both part of the religious establishment that actually killed Jesus, and they had money. The Bible tells us that, that the tomb of Joseph was brand new, a rich man's tomb, freshly hewn out of rock, never been used, really nice. Isaiah tells us that the suffering servant is going to have his grave assigned with the wicked, yet he's going to be with a rich man in his death. Very specific on how he's going to be buried and what's going to happen. Now, there are three ways that the Romans uh, buried crucified victims. One of the ways that they would dispose of the body is they'd just let it hang on the cross for weeks or months. Birds would come and pick at it, or dogs would come and eat it, and it'd just crumble where it lay. They did it as a fear tactic to make sure nobody messed with them, because this is what will happen to you if you go against the Roman Empire. Now, in Israel, this wasn't happening at the time of Jesus. And the reason for that was because the Jews had a law in Deuteronomy. And it said, listen, if a man is a criminal and you hang him on a tree, he can't hang on the tree overnight. He's a curse, and it'll bring a curse on the land. So you have to take him off of the tree before sunset. So to appease the Jewish people and the Jewish religion and the Jewish law, the Roman government, for about a 70-year period, allowed them to take crucified victims off of the cross before sunset and properly bury them. Rome didn't care about the law. They just didn't want to have an insurrection (laughs) rise up and a militia form over these types of things. So they appeased them by allowing them to do this. What would happen with some of these criminals that nobody cared about is that the Romans would take them off before the sun went down to appease the Jews. They'd tie them to a horse. They'd drag them through town to show everybody this is what happens if you mess with the Roman Empire. And then they would go and they'd throw them into a mass grave with other criminals and bury them. And to be honest, that was where Jesus should have gone. 
He was a criminal to the Roman Empire. He was a criminal, a blasphemer to the Jewish council. And that was where his destiny was going to be. A grave assigned with the wicked. You remember he didn't have any money. He was a carpenter, right? Not a rich guy. He literally tells us, I don't even have a place to sleep tonight, right? The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And yet, this poor carpenter, whose grave was assigned with the wicked, doesn't get taken off the cross by his mom, or his brothers, or his disciples. He gets taken off by two members of the same council that condemned him to death, and buried in a rich man's tomb. The third way that the Roman Empire uh, buried crucified victims was that friends or family could come and appeal for the body, take it off, and go and bury it. And that's exactly what we see happen with Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, thus fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 53. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Is that fascinating? How could Isaiah know that? It's not Nostradamus vagueness. It's very, very specific on how he was going to die and on how he was going to be buried. Well, when did Isaiah live? Isaiah was a contemporary with Micah. They lived at the same time. They lived in the 8th century BC. Uh, Isaiah was an advisor to King Hezekiah when the Assyrian Empire was coming down and wrecking the northern tribes. He prophesied a lot, and he talked a lot about specific things Jesus would do at his first coming and specific things that he will do at his second coming. But this prophecy predates Jesus' birth once again by 700 plus years on how the suffering servant is going to die and be buried. Fascinating. But the question remains, how can we be sure that the prophecy of Isaiah 53.9 was not added after Christ's death, like a lot of people say? We go back to the Dead Sea Scrolls. One of the greatest finds in the Dead Sea Scrolls library was the Great Isaiah Scroll. There's a picture of part of it. It's huge. Um, but it has pretty much all of Isaiah in it, and it dates to 125 BC. This is 155 to 158 years prior to Jesus' burial. That is astonishing. Hard evidence we have today to show people, no, it existed before, at least 150 years before his death. Here it is. Now, we can make cases that take it even further back because we have other things, but I love pointing people to this because you can't argue it. It's there, literally in black and white, if you can read Hebrew, right? It's there. God wants us to know that we can trust him. And prophecy is one of the ways that he gains our trust. Isaiah 53, 9, does it meet criteria one? I think so. Crucified criminals can't usually manipulate how they're buried. Very difficult to do because nobody cares. You're a criminal. Typically, they didn't have family care enough about them to come and bury them. They were usually thrown in a mass grave. Jesus has these guys who were his enemies, not his friends, come and bury him in a rich man's tomb. Criteria number two. Did this prophecy predate Jesus' birth and death? Yes. And it's confirmed in the great Isaiah scroll. Hard evidence that it predates what Jesus did, and it wasn't added retrospectively. What about number three? Could it be a coincidence? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, there might be other crucified victims who were buried in a rich man's tomb. It's not out of the question, right? It's very possible that uh, wicked people were given pity by a rich guy and buried in the tomb. I don't know of any, but it could have happened. But what do we do with this coincidence argument? 
because this comes up a lot. Listen, it's good guessing. It's not true that God's behind it, but it's just ideas that you kind of look at as if they were fulfilled. Coincidence. Uh, there's a really cool old book. It's from 1957. So this always gives me encouragement because when I'm studying and I'm like, oh man, I wonder if ever, anybody's ever thought of this before. I find it in old books that people thought of 50, 60, 100, 200, 300 years ago. Christians have already thought about this stuff and I'm late to the party once again. There's this cool old book. It's called Science Speaks by Peter Stoner. 1957. That was one year after Elvis hit it big. Uh, just so you know, I'm a huge Elvis fan. I love the guy. Love the guy. In his book, he did a probability analysis of one man fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. And he did it with eight prophecies. What are the odds of one man fulfilling eight Old Testament prophecies? Eight, all right? And he came up with the mathematical equation that the probability of one man fulfilling eight prophecies is one in one quintillion. So you're telling me there's a chance, right? The 8 a.m. service didn't laugh at that dumb and dumber. Uh, <laughs> they didn't laugh at that. Thank you for laughing. One in one quintillion. And now we all know what a quintillion is. No, we don't know what that is. Let me help you. A quintillion is 1,000 uh, quadrillions. That doesn't help you at all, does it? Okay, a quadrillion is 1,000 trillion. Now we're getting to understand with the deficit. We can see, okay, I see how this works, right? One quintillion. Here, here's an analogy that, that Peter Stoner gave us. He said, listen, if we took silver dollars and we covered the state of Texas in silver dollars two feet deep, that's a lot of silver dollars, first of all, and we could help the national deficit, by the way, if we had that many, right? But no, that's what he said. Two feet deep, cover the state of Texas, and then you took a green marker and you colored one side of one silver dollar green and you threw it into the great state of Texas. The probability of one man fulfilling eight Old Testament prophecies is the same as letting a blind man loose in Texas and on his first attempt he bends down and picks up the green silver dollar. Now here's the crazy thing. Jesus didn't fulfill eight Old Testament prophecies. He filled somewhere between 300 and 350. God is screaming for your attention. There is so much evidence for his existence and what's true if people will just look. God wants us to know Jesus is someone significant. Jesus is someone extremely important. And you know what? We probably should listen to his message. Not just because he did miracles, like walking on water. Not just because he raised people from the dead. Not just because he predicted he'd rise from the dead and then did rise from the dead, doing something that no human being has ever done in history. But also because God, using time, tells us what he's going to do way before he does it, and then he does it. And we get to experience all the benefits because we're way on this side of it, looking back, going, wow, that's, that's pretty good. That's pretty awesome. So what? What's the takeaway for today? What's the application? Do you trust what God says about the future? Do we trust what God says about our future? This guy doesn't just tell us, hey, trust me, I'm good for it. He shows us over and over and over and over again that we should trust him. He gives us evidence that we should trust him. Fulfilled prophecy being one of many. Do we trust what he says? 
about what he's going to do. Do we trust what he says about, in this world you will have trouble? We don't like it, but man, I really trust that because it's happening. Then he says, take heart because I've overcome the world. He's overcome. He inaugurated overcoming the world at the cross and the consummation of it coming about at his second coming is getting close. And I'm excited about that. But man, I get so focused on stupid stuff in my life or hurt or, or numbing myself from pain. I don't, I don't focus on trusting him with my future. Do you trust what God says about the future? A couple weeks ago, uh, I was asleep. It was uh, Christmas Eve, 2 a.m. Christmas Eve morning. And I get a text from my friend. And he told me that one of our other friends, Chuck, he died from COVID. He's 37 years old, uh, has four boys, wife, got it real quick, went into the hospital, ventilator, dialysis, dead. Fast. We were praying for him for that little bit of time while he was in the hospital. God didn't answer our prayers the way we asked. And I've been thinking about it a lot over the past two weeks, especially for, for his wife and the kids. And I'm, I get upset about it, and I, and I get hurt about it, and I, God, this, I hate this stuff. And I know people die, and I, we've all experienced that a lot this year. We see it, we hear about it, but it, it, we shouldn't get comfortable with it, we shouldn't get used to it. God, what do you, why? I know, I know you're going to make it good, but man, this just, this hurts right now. God, why? And he keeps bringing me back to, do you trust me with what I say? Robbie, do you trust me with what I say? My friend Chuck believed in Jesus. He followed Jesus. I know where he is. Not because I don't hurt, but because there's promises in here from a guy who's really trustworthy. That to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That if you believe in Jesus, you have eternal life. Our future is anchored in the promises of God, and he is a very trustworthy source. Without him, we get blown around all over the place because we put our hope in, in governments or, or in finances or in career or in relationships and families, and those are always going to fail us. And there's always going to come an end to those types of things. But we have to put our hope, and we have to be anchored in something that doesn't change. And God doesn't change. And God's word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Psalm 119.89 says that. God's word is eternal. What he says happens. And we don't just have to trust him on faith. We can trust him because of evidence. We can believe because he's shown it to us over and over and over and over again. And although there's pain in this world, he's promised us a better day's coming. He's promised us that because of what his son did on the cross, that we can have eternal life because of his righteousness. Not because we're that good, because we're not. But because of him, God works with us in the currency of trust. God works with us in the currency of trust. That's what he wants from you and me. And it's beautiful because he goes to great lengths to show us over millennia just how trustworthy he is. Fulfilled prophecy, fulfilled prophecy in Jesus Christ should help us to trust our God more and more, especially in difficult times.